1: I realized that that missile had just come off the rail, and I saw it, and I yelled on the radio, "Cred four to break right, break right," because I knew that's who it was heading. He breaks right, and the missile speared him, and his airplane literally vaporizes. Another stand-up
0: Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign jello. And on this episode, we are again repurposing one of our happy hour conversations from our Patreon page. Now, if you saw episode 159 with Fred Clifton, then you know that this is a Zoom recording, so the audio and video quality is not quite as good. But based on the response to that video, I really think you're going to like it. This particular guest was there for the notorious F-16 dodging Sam's over Iraq mission. If you know what I'm talking about, it's stroke three. We use some of the audio in some of our uh, opening bumpers here on the show, and it's a really amazing conversation. So forgive us for the audio and video quality. We're doing our best, but stand by for this really cool discussion. Here we go. I have to show you something, and I'm sure you've already seen it, but I got to show you anyway. Yeah. Air Force, look at this swaying under his parachute, Major Jeffrey Tice. Is that you? That's me. That's the pretty auspicious beginning, but uh,
1: not exactly how you want to be remembered. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist because this was January 19th, 1991,
1: and you were stroke who? I was stroke one. Stroke what? You were leading it? I was the flight lead, yeah. Had an eight ship. Actually, we had 16 from my squadron. I was leading wow. one package of eight. The other other package of eight was going to a different target, but all of us blasted off at the same time. So. Yeah, it was uh, third day. Yeah, 19 Jan, 91, third day of the war.
0: Well, I, I, we can talk about various things, but for me, I have seen that video so many times, and I'm, I don't know if your voice is in it or not. Stroke 3 and 4 definitely have a lot of uh, show in that. and But we used it in Top Gun for showing just never giving up and getting your speed back when you can, blah, blah, blah. But the guy
1: whose HUD video that is, who is that? That's E.T. That's Emmett Touya. He was a captain at the time. He was my number three man. We started out as an eight ship, but I had to kick four guys out because once we uh, refueled prior to the strike, as we crossed into bad guy territory, one of my wingmen went lost wingman. It was a cloudy, messy day. It was weird. I'll I'll explain that in a little while, but I had to kick him back home along with somebody else to take him back because we were in bad guy territory. And then a little further up, we had a mechanical issue. Where i had to kick two more guys out because we were a bad guy territory so we ended up instead of eight having four and it was just a matter of reassigned target dimpies and away we went from there so it was one three five and six i think is all we had, something like that so <laughs> a bunch of wingmen went away and a bunch of flight leads ended up going in so it worked out okay
0: <laughs> this reminds me when i was at top gun the tomcat was in a lull in its, in its career it was having a hard time so the joke was always that you would brief four, walk three, or step on three, start two, taxi one, and it would come back with an emergency. Yeah, <laughs> you guys weren't no, quite as bad. But, no, well, no, it. you
1: know the F sixteen was extremely reliable. We had no issues really overall, and our maintenance guys there were above and beyond. I mean, it was just absolutely incredible. This was yeah. essentially uh, a couple minor buffoonery issues, but. They were all worked out later. You know? So yeah. you
0: said you started with something like 16, but a four-ship go over the uh, target?
1: Yeah, over my target. The other eight from my squadron managed to go there. The whole package queue was, as you read, it's a big, it was 74 airplanes plus. And the target array was stretched out from the northwestern side of Baghdad down to the southeastern side of Baghdad. And my squadron mates and their eight-ship were bombing an airfield up on the northeast side. Our target was the oil refinery in the center of Baghdad, on the big bend in the river. There, if you know, it looks like there's a thumb sticks up there. And the third group were bombing a weapon storage area in the southeast corner of Baghdad, and that was another squadron. And they had brought 32 airplanes for that. So eight, eight, and 32—a big honking package. I mean, it was obviously huge. Plus, we had Eagles and pre-strike sweep, and we had all of the uh, F-4s doing their thing, the wild weasels and you know, partridge and a pear tree.
0: Well, it's it actually a, big, a very good article, Tika, I would say. I mean, it talks about the strike package. It talks about, I guess, did you have some fallouts with either the wild weasel guys or uh, some
1: of the you know. EF support? There, there was, you know, obviously after the fact, and it took me a few extra weeks to get the debrief. But <laughs> after the fact, yeah, there was some fallout. But in in reality, it actually had very little bearing at all on the uh, package. When you get right down to it, it was... The ROE at the time was you couldn't drop if you couldn't see. Visually, visual see the target for us because we were dropping Mark 84s, no LGBs. This was all smart pilots, dumb bombs. So ROE was you had to see it. The guys up in the Northeast, they had to abort because if you remember the first week of the war, it was just a cloud deck from 12,000 down to almost the surface. And so you couldn't see it. Well we had the proverbial sucker hole. My A a-chip now four had the proverbial sucker hole. And um, the guys on the Southeast side, they were just basically going through a bunch of cloud deck too. And they finally saw something. So they laid waste to that weapon storage area. And the guys up in the Northeast were literally going to their secondary target and conning above our big sucker hole. So the whole world lit up as we were rolling in. You know how things go. None of this was bad until it was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, let's pause there and say hello, because you and I are just meeting for the first time, at least visually here through the miracle of Zoom and Mac connected us. I appreciate that. And I forget where you even are, but you've got your standard memorabilia
1: behind you there. Yeah. In but- you know, I'm in, currently in my I Love Me room. I live in Tucson. So okay. Tucson, not by the sea. That's what I call it.
0: Well, I was in Phoenix yesterday trying to get out of there all day and finally did, right? We get on the airplane and push back and a big thunderstorm shut down the airport. So that was awesome. But finally got home last night.
1: I don't miss that at all. Let me tell you. <laughs> Are you, you guys don't get that just uh, 100 miles down the road? Oh, no, no. We do get that. i meant at the airline thing. <laughs> did you do that? Oh, yeah. I spent 13 years with American.
0: That's who gave yeah. me a ride home. Thanks very much. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. I was supposed to fly to L.A. on a deadhead in order to fly to Maui, and the Deadhead airplane broke, and it took so long, they just said, all right, you can just go home. So I'm supposed to be in Maui right now, but at any rate, uh, I'm not too hungry. Well,
1: to I, re- I thought your email said you were going to be in Maui, and then I was looking at your background, I go, that doesn't look like any layover hotel I remember.
0: Yeah, <laughs> That's right. Wait, you didn't carry all your memorabilia and put it yeah, up everywhere you went? I had, I had <laughs> enough. I probably could have carried it and left
1: it in most of the hotel rooms, just like yeah. you are you retired now? You don't look old enough to be retired. Yeah, I'm fully retired. I've been retired for... This will be... I retired from American Airlines in 2012. So this will be 10 years retired now. Wow. I went a few years early because when they filed for bankruptcy the second time, uh, I said, you guys don't know what you're doing. And and then they foisted a bunch of uh, papers on us after they went to force majeure and basically canceled all of our contracts and all that. And I said, here's a new work rules, which... Essentially for me, and I was living in Tucson at the time, I've been here since 2004, and basically it was telling me that I would be gone approximately 20 days a month because my domicile was New York. I had a lot of juniority. I never got any seniority because they kept screwing around with all that. So essentially, uh, you take 20 days gone, you add commute time back and forth. I'd have been gone 26 days a month. And I still like my wife. So, you know, it was... uh, Pretty easy decision at that stage of the game. I said, you guys are stupid. I'm leaving. And I was 57. So I went about three years early. I was going to retire at 60 anyway, even though they changed the rules in 07, which is another reason I had a lot of juniority. There wasn't any accession rates. You know, you're not going anywhere. So I was in that band. I called it the no man's land of juniority. You You weren't going up and you weren't going down. You were stuck until a bunch of old farts finally kicked out the top. Obviously, that was supposed to happen somewhere around 2012, but then they filed for bankruptcy a second time while I'd been there, and I said, okay, you guys are stupid. So I've been retired fully for 10 years now. It's pretty good. That's awesome.
0: Did you have an active duty
1: retirement to go with it? Yeah, I spent 21 years, seven months, and 15 days on active duty with time off for good behavior they gave me 22 years. So Was the whole time in F-16s? Oh, no, no, no. I started out in the F-111. In the varkasaurus and then i did that for a four-year tour and i begged and begged and begged to do something different which back in the air force days it was impossible to change airplanes but i had an opportunity to apply for a job with the uh, aggressors the air force version of if you want to call it the top gun guys we were just the bad guys but we had three units one in the states one in europe and one in the philippines for the far east guys Well, I was in Europe at the time, so I applied for the aggressors in Europe and I got selected even though I couldn't spell BFM. So I ended up going from the F-111 to the F-5 and teaching people how to do D-A-C-T and BFM and all that stuff when I couldn't even spell it. And then uh, at the end of that four-year tour, so I had two back-to-back tours in Europe, which was wonderful. And uh, at the end of that tour, my boss was like, hey, we want to keep you here. I'm going to see if we can get you a job staying in Europe flying f-16s like you wanted i said oh great i'm all for that 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 turned into a chocolate mess and he said oh no no he hasn't spent enough time in the f-11 so they stuck me back in the f-11 and well we called rtu but it was a rag for you guys so they Mm -hmm. put me back to the rag at mountain home idaho for f-11s that's fine it was great i grew up in the f-11 so I, i knew it basically like the back of my hand then from there i spent two years doing that and Air Force was having, just like the Navy, was having a huge exodus of pilots because the airlines were hiring. What a surprise. This was uh, late 80s, big exodus. People are leaving. Air Force goes, oh, we got to stop this. And so they came up with a bunch of crazy ideas from a manpower's perspective. And they gave every wing commander at the fighter base, they gave him what was called the, they called it the golden carrot. So you got a carrot, one every six months. So the wing commander could designate one guy and say, I'm going to give him this assignment. You know, so all of a sudden our military personnel guys are out of the loop and the wing commanders are making assignments, you know, two a year. Well, that's how I got the F-16. My boss at Mountain Home goes, we are wasting your talent here. We love you. We spent billions of dollars to teach you how to do a -A DACT and we spent millions of dollars how to do all this other stuff. And here we we brought you back into the F-111 community, which was still fun. We had a great time, low altitude, high speed at night, but he said, nope. We're sending where do you want to go? I go, well, you know, I've always wanted an F-16. He goes, okay, you'll get an F-16. Well, he didn't tell me that. He just said, and I was ready to get out. I mean, I was finished with the Air Force at that point because you we were glued into one particular weapon system and there was absolutely no, no exchange. And then I said, well, you know, I'm, I'll retire or I'll quit and go join the Air National Guard, you know, do something different. Right. And I was literally within, I would say, a month or two of getting out of the Air Force, joining the National Guard somewhere. I didn't know where yet. And then my boss just brought me in his office and read me the riot act and said, just shut up and color. Shut up and color. You're going to get a good deal. And he couldn't tell me what it was. And that's how I got the F-16 then. So the last 10 years of my Air Force career was flying F-16s.
0: So I always hate when people do this to me, but I'll do it to you anyway. Uh, Martin Richard Opus, happened to know him. He was an F-111 guy and then ended up in the, uh, I think, Boston Air National Guard flying the Eagles. We had him on a happy hour.
1: What was his last name again?
0: Richards or Richardson, maybe? I need to look. It's bad that I forget. Opus, he went by. He was an F-111 yep. guy and, and went to Eagles, and he was airborne on 9-11. So that was, I think, around your time frame. And then um, how about T-Day, Mike Turiel Day? Did you do, overlap with him anywhere? He was our F-16 guest. So we've had F-16 episode. We've had F-111 episode. We've had pretty much everything you've uh, flown, F-5.
1: Yeah, I don't recognize either one of those guys, and it's pretty unusual because the F-111 is a pretty small community. Uh, well, I don't think
0: T-Day flew the F-111. He was an F-16 guy, 4,000 hours.
1: T-Day, you said?
0: T with a T, Tango Day.
1: Oh, Tango Day. No, I knew a guy who was one of the top F-16 guys hours-wise. Matter of fact, a buddy of mine who lives about four miles that way is uh, number four on the list of total hours in F-16s. So I think he's somewhere around 5,000 or something.
0: Yeah. We had uh, John Marks on here, Carl. He's still flying the A-10 with over 7,000 hours.
1: Yeah, well, that's what happens that's when you're guard bum. Yeah, that's right. Just grow old there. I should have done that in retrospect. That's it. But yeah, just be a guard bum. That's exactly oh, right. Man.
0: Uh, well, by now it's too late for me, but getting back to your story. So what, how long had you been in the F-16 by January 19th of 91? Two years. Oh, wow. But you were experienced in everything else at that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I got out of the F-11 community in 89 and I went to RTU for the F-16 okay. right then. And that was in the, uh, Late summer, early fall of 89. And then as soon as I finished RTU, I went right over to uh, back to Torhome to Spain, back to Europe, I should say. And I spent a year at Torhome before we uh, deployed to go to the war. I had the better part. It wasn't quite two years, 18 months of uh, F-16 time, but I had enough time in the fighters that I knew pretty much what I was doing.
0: Okay. So then uh, did you get any loving on uh, January 17 or 18 or was January
1: 19 the first pop No, that was actually, that was my uh, second mission. I didn't fly on the first night because when we deployed, we only took the aviation package. And that's just the pilots and the maintenance guys and minimal support folks just to keep the aviation going. We get there and it's a bare base. I mean, there's a runway and a hangar and there's nothing else. (laughs) Our, quote, advanced team was supposed to be there three days before. They didn't show they showed up a week after we got there. And the guy with the briefcase chained to his wrist, you know, with a billion dollars in cash, he shows up a week after we're already there and we've got things going. And what I'm trying to tell you is that we all had, as the squadron commander pulls us in the off and says, hey, we got no support here. We're going to have to make our own base. OK. then it's like, anybody got civil engineering? One guy kind of raises his hand in the back of the room. And say, OK, what did you do? Well, I helped the Israelis build. Air bases in the Gev Desert. Okay, you're in charge of civil engineering. Build us a place. In and Now, what about you? What about you? Uh, yeah, Tico, you're in charge of maintenance. You're the maintenance officer. You're the Air Force does it different than a Navy. You know, so all of a sudden, not only did we have to build a base from nothing, we still had to go out and fly because the threat was still real. We were the first F-16 unit and we were one of the closest ones right to the Kuwaiti border there in Doha gutter. And so we were launching airplanes and doing whatever was necessary at that time, but we were in an air and air configuration. So maintenance guys were doing whatever. so. We're building an air base at the same time we're trying to support whatever is necessary as the buildup began and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We had one of the nicest uh, tent cities you've ever seen. You know, <laughs> we knew exactly how to make this right. So, yeah, it was kind of a big deal. So on the first night of the war, I had been awake for thirty six hours. I literally touched every single airplane and touched every bomb with all my maintenance guys. You know, I had 800 guys working for me there. They were so fired up. It was all I could do to keep them from going, hanging on a wing to go with us, you know? And uh, so I did not fly on the first night then I flew on the 18th and then again on the 19th and I was in the afternoon push. So we had uh, basically two pushes a day unless, well, we didn't get any air to air commitments because by that time there was enough eagles and enough, everybody else right. there was need for us to be there. So we were all, we were all moving, but highlights of the first strike on the 18th. And he, anything oh, exciting? Uh, it was, uh, it was like 12 oh. o'clock high milk run. You know, again, the ROE, the weather was crappy. We knew where we were going, but you know, they said, Hey, if you can't see it, you can't drop. Well, then they changed the rules right about the time we were getting ready to step to the jets. They said, Hey, since it's not in downtown, you're okay. Cause you're just bombing an airfield. So, we basically did a 12 o'clock high radar lay down, you know, beep, and everything falls off. And you go, gee, I wonder what that was gonna look like for, you know, you didn't get any BDA from that. So it was very mundane, not even shoot. We're in the mid-20s, so there wasn't even any triple A coming up at our altitude. It wasn't anything to be excited about at all. We had one missile launch and I think it wasn't anywhere near us. I mean, when I say anywhere near us, I mean, oh yeah, what was that? Uh I didn't hear anybody call Magnum, so that's not a harm. I don't know what that was. Oh, well, <laughs> see where we were. It wasn't, it yeah. was absolutely nothing. We all come back and land and come back, and everybody's, you know, we do the debrief lasted shorter than it took me to tell you that story, you know, because it's like, eh, here we are. Everybody's good. Yep. No problems. Questions, comments, good. Okay. Go to bed. Got to get up and do this again tomorrow. Yeah, that's right.
0: Did you find that to be, dare I say, somewhat unsatisfying? Not that we take, glee and, and war. You know, but-
1: as you've done it before, we've all moved enough mud to know that there's something very satisfying about moving mud because you get instant feedback. When you drop dropping ordnance, there's instant feedback of how you did. And in those situations, you go, guess we're just going to have to wait for a satellite to come by and take a picture and see how we did, or wait for the next target array to come out and say, oh shit, we got to go back and do it again. In that sense, it is unsatisfying. But yeah. in the real sense of, Hey, I had eight guys when I took off. I had eight guys when I got back. All the airplanes didn't have any holes in it. It was extremely satisfying to have a first combat mission with brand new lieutenants on my wing. It was very satisfying to have the first combat mission for those guys and for me come back successful in the respect that everybody came home, no holes in no airplane, you know, and that kind of stuff. So there's always a good and a bad side to everything. (laughs) Sure. And
0: I always say on the podcast, you know, it's not like we're you know looking for war or want to go but if there's going to be one we want to know how we're going to do i mean cuz we spend most of our career training and theorizing so we wa- we want to get out there and do it so the strike on the 18th was nothing
1: like the strike on the 19th sounds like no a different scenario from a, not only the target array but also from how the, the action, whole action yeah. was played out if you recall the first 3 days of the war as far as the air war was concerned were pre-planned And target array was all laid out. Every single squadron that was going to be flying in this war had an opportunity to go to the black hole in Riyadh and go through all of this. You know, so we send one guy, we go up there, look at everything and go, yay, nay. And we're talking, this is captains and majors. This is not upper ranking guys. This is the guys who are on the pointy end of the spear. The upper ranking guys did what they said they do. They said, here's what we want to do. Let the captains and majors figure out how to make it work. And that's what happened. So we kind of knew what the first three days, 72 hours were going to be like. And everybody was pretty well prepared for that. We knew that by day two, the target array was going to open up. And that's exactly what happened. So we're in the first daytime raid to Baghdad. That's what Package Q was. It was the first daytime raid into, quote, Baghdad. And so the circle around, you know, can't drop here. All all the ROEs were already in place, even though our target array was not downtown, it was downtown from the big perspective of inside this boundary that the bosses said, yeah, you got to steer around this stuff. So that's what we were doing. So we kind of knew that. And everybody knew it was the most highly defended piece of property outside of Moscow. It was just part of the game. By that time, I'd been in the Air Force 14 years. So kind of knew, like you said, trained 14 years in multiple different airplanes and knew what the heck was going on. So it wasn't wasn't a big surprise as far as what we were doing. As a matter of fact, a lot of guys were pretty excited about it. I had a couple people who were a little bit upset by the fact that you look at the look at the measle chart, we call it where all the all the SAMS were located, you know, in and around our target area, and you go, "Who? this is gonna be exciting. Like, eh. There's no electricity in all of Iraq. What are you worried about? You know, oh, they got generators. Yeah. Where are they getting the fuel? So you're minimizing everybody's expectations that it's going to be terrible. But there really wasn't any any big problem as far as my guys were concerned. I mean, as
0: much as you are willing, t- take us through this story. I, as a, you can read it in that article. And for those listening on Patreon, I'll put it back up. But they've all seen the article, too. But, I mean, you guys find a sucker hole. You roll in. Kind of light them up, but they light you up too. so I, that's a well, you know
1: the whole objective of the package was we were doing a feint towards the northwest as though we were scud hunting because that was the big deal at that time. You know, the scuds were launching to friendly areas, and we wanted to prevent that. So we had this huge package headed towards the western area, the border with Jordan and everything. And then at the pre-planned moment, everybody has student body right. And the objective, again, was because of the target erase, we were all going to be over target simultaneously and then flow to the south and life was going to be good. As I mentioned earlier, the guys in the far northwest, when they turned in, their target was obscured and they were unable to drop. So they just continued at the medium altitude towards their secondary target, which just happened to flow right over top of my target, which was wide open. And as we turned in, you know, and I tell people it was a Stevie Wonder target, you could find it from anywhere. And it was too easy, you know, big river, oil refinery, smokestacks, geez, how could you miss it? We had renegotiated the dimpies between the four of us instead of an eight airplanes, we had four. So we renegotiated the dimpies and everybody put two Mark 84s on top of the cracking towers. You're familiar with what an oil refinery is and cracking towers and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. There were four cracking towers in the oil refinery, and they were separated northwest and southeast side of the oil refinery. So it was really easy to separate the Dimpies from our attack. And that was easy. So I had arranged the attack so that I would be the last guy out flowing through the target area and coming, kind of a Polish heart attack. And we all roll in and come back out. And I'm the last guy furthest out. Well, as my eight ship buddies came overhead, the world lights up and all of the AAA starts. But it was, eh, it was 37 millimeter and it didn't go up. It was blowing up somewhere around 15, 18,000, which was almost 10,000 people below us. So it wasn't any big deal. They didn't have any bigger stuff right there in that area. So we weren't too worried about it. But it was perfectly symmetrical in the fact that it looked like almost every street corner had something on it because you know how it was like a checkerboard of. Same pattern as the roads in the town. So you could literally, you could have gotten out and walked on it from one to the other, to the other, to the other, but it was all well below us. And that was no big deal. When the SAMs started coming up, they were optically launched or they were just being ballistically fired. You know, some guy on the ground was going, all wills it, and he's pushing a button. He's not looking at anything because the radars are shut off. The spark varks and the wild weasels had made sure of that. And of course, like I said, we had turned off all the electricity in the country before that. So there wasn't, you know, and they're only running generators for a little time. And they're worried because they're generating an IR signature. You know how mm-hmm. all this tactical stuff runs together. And so everybody's just trying to hunker down. And But my boss says, I have to shoot. So he's just launching ballistic stuff. And of course, the RWR is lighting up, confirming those things. So you're not getting too excited. But when you see one go up past you, an SA-2, for example and go through the formation that's flying overhead, everybody gets excited. I kind of like to say that there's every once in a while there's grown men crying on the radio and they get pretty excited. But the first really accurate missile literally went between me and my wingman, which was E.T. at the time, stroke three. So it was one, three, five, and six or something like that. I can't remember precisely, but one and three. So me and E.T., were we started doing the funky chicken because the one lit us up. And went literally right between the two of us, SA-2. And they go up to about 80, 90, and then they blow up because that's what they're designed to do. If it doesn't hit somewhere, they just blow up somewhere in the stratosphere. So that one blows up and we kind of get back together. And now it's time for the target attack. And as I'm rolling in and SA-6 comes up and it's not on me, but the guys are just exiting above us. And I realized that that missile had just come off the rail and I saw it and I yelled on the radio for man crying on the radio. I yelled on the radio for, you know, Crud 4 to break right, break right, because I knew that's who it was heading. He breaks right and the missile speared him and his airplane literally vaporizes. So we lost one already and I don't have time to mess with it because my target's right over here. I got to finish this attack. And um, that was Mike Roberts. MR gets hit, we don't know what happened because remember the airplane was hit at 20 something thousand and you're not going to get a parachute until 14. We're not looking down there. You're looking up at this big cloud and there's vapor and you're okay. He's no longer with us. We got other things to do. Finish our target attack and missiles are flying on a regular frequent basis by now. That group, the eight ship now is further out of the, they're outside of that sucker hole. And so they're actually getting clear. They're still having to do a few little bit of SAM maneuvering, but not too bad. But E.T. and I are truly tail end Charlie. We're the last two out of the target zone. And so as you saw in the video, we were doing the funky chicken for several minutes. That video has been used. <laughs> you use it a lot. But, I've seen
0: it multiple, multiple
1: times. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was on the staff... I use that video to demonstrate to people who don't understand what piece of essence, you know. I so said, "This is what piece of S means." Oh, look at his airspeed, look at his altitude, and I said, "I'm going to count 1,001, 1,002, one thousand one, one thousand two, one thousand. Look what his airspeed is now, and look what his altitude is now. That's what piece of S will do for you." Anyway.
0: If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in Northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today.
1: So that video shows when I got back in my Intel debrief it was uh, the intel guys said they went back and did all their spooky stuff to figure out what was going on. And they said between nine and 12 missiles were shot at ET and me in about less than two minute period. There's only one that I had any indication had any guidance on it, which was the one that ended up taking my airplane apart. So um, as we were coming off target, we're doing the funky chicken. I finally told ET, you probably listen to it on the video, you'll, you hear me say, flow southeast now because we were about ready to go right into the middle where everything was coming up so we split that area and i ended up on the western side of it and et ended up on the eastern side of it and now we were separate and doing the funky chicken to stay away from each other but the missile that had my name on it at the time was it came up as a three it was uncorrelated initially on the rwr and then it came up with an optical guidance indication. I went, oh, okay. Well, if you recall, the weather was, like I said, really bad on the surface. It was actually kind of rainy and hazy and humid. So when that missile launches, you get a big contrail coming off the ground. You can see them, and it's not a problem. So I see a missile coming off the ground at my uh, left 11 low, but it's going northbound. Well, I'm going southbound. I go, okay, that's not it. I look over here, no, there's nothing over there. Look back over here. Nothing over there, look back over my shoulder and the missile starts arcing towards me. That's the first one that actually had some kind of guidance on it. And once it started arcing towards me, I turned towards it and uh, put it on the wingtip. And I did that. This is the third or fourth time I'd done something like that. And I go, oh, you know, another one. Still had my tanks on because I needed that fuel. Bombs were gone a while back. So that's not a big deal. As the missile got closer to me, I go, oh, this guy is really impressive because I unloaded and he bid low. So you you watch the contrail go with you and you go, okay, he's pulling the lead. I know what's going to happen next. Just wait. One potato, two potato. And like the book says, when you just can't stand it anymore, I started to roll around the missile. It went between the leading edge of the stab and the trailing edge of the wing on the left hand side. It went so close. I heard it right by me. and. By that time, I think I was probably out of chaff and flares, but I couldn't tell you for honest to goodness, but I did have an ECM pod on that was very well-tuned to those single-digit SAMs, so I wasn't too concerned about it, and when it blew up, it blew up behind me and underneath me, and it was just like hitting jet wash on the range. Oh, a little burble, no big deal. I roll out, and then Bitch and Betty starts talking to me, you know, and I went, "Uh uh-oh, that's not good. And she tells me I got an engine fire, and Of course, you know, in the F-16, you can just do this and you can see the vertical stabilizer. So I look back and I go, oh, yeah, OK, that's not good. So I said, I got a jettison and I jettisoned the tank. But because of the way I was when the missile blew up, there was some damage to the left hand tank. So the right one clears off normal. The left one hung and rolled over and smacked the horizontal stabilizer as it went free. And when it did, it put me out of control. So I roll back over upside down again, and I got it back and zoomed up and just pointed the nose up. And then the airplane starts shutting off and on F-16s electric jet. Without electricity, it doesn't work so good. It takes a few seconds for the EPU to get going. And now all of this is all part of temporal distortion. So a second is a minute, a minute is an hour, an hour is a day. So now the temporal distortion has taken effect and the time has expanded to fill the available void. And your brain is functioning at, at its normal speeds, which we don't ever use. So now you're, you're I'm doing things, and the world is not happening fast anymore. Everything is slowed down in my world. Now, everything's still going at 300 knots, but in my world, it's not. So I can replay everything I did, which was mostly mechanical when you think about it you know, on throttle, but I stand the throttle up, you know, I still got thrust. Okay, I know where I'm going. I have no altimeter. All that stuff is going. And because the EPU is just spinning back up, the electrical bus cycling is happening. So things are shutting down. They're coming back on, shutting down, coming back on. You would never notice that on a normal emergency mission. If you had an emergency in the F-16 like that, where the engine shut down, the EPU would fire. You would never notice it. But in my scenario, I could tell that things were, you know, the breakers were not resetting. It was just taking time. So it was like the airplane was shutting down, starting up, shutting down, starting up. But no big deal. I zoomed up. Keyed the microphone, told him I was hit, and I told him I I lost the engine. Well, actually, I did not lose the engine. It had minimum thrust, but it was still producing thrust. But when I keyed the mic and told the flight lead who was already headed back, I said, stroke once hit, I lost the engine. He yells, punch out. I go, "Uh, not yet. So then I'm zooming up and I get to an altitude where, I don't know, I have no altimeter now. Nothing's working properly. The fire is still going on kind of maybe two or three feet behind my head. Because when I looked back over to take an assessment, there was several exploding cigar looking holes in the back of my airplane and the trailing edges were shredded pretty good, but it was still flying. So I, okay, I'm going to ride this thing. And about that time, as I coasted up to a medium altitude, I'm going to say I was probably in the high twenties, low thirties, don't know for sure. I said, this feels about like you know, the airspeed I need to carry for no engine. <laughs> you know, I just needed something. So this feels about right. So I just leveled it off and let it go. And by that time, I was over the overcast now. So that sucker hole is behind me and things calmed down. The radios are calm. And I start hearing talk about, okay, he's over here, over here. So people were being vectored towards me. And I figured that out. And I said, don't come back here. Press home. A lost wingman, wounded bird, just get out of my way because you don't want to be here. I cannot make it on my current thrust. So a couple of quick conversations occur. And then I see a big, I see an F-111 making a big turn over off to my lower right. And I go, of course, I'm not on his frequency. So I, I just say, whoever you are, get the hell out of here on guard. And, you know, he just keeps making his turn and disappears and somebody else was trying to come back for me, and I got everybody out of there. But about that time, the engine quits. So now I'm a glider, and I keyed the microphone, and I said, how far to the border? Because I, I lost all of that stuff. All that stuff had not come back. And somebody said, 206. I went, Ooh, that's a long way. That's a long walk. ROE again said, if you're more than 130 miles north, we're not coming for you. The SAR guys didn't have any forward bases set up. So they go, More than 130, we're not coming for you. I do the quick math and I go, well, you know, the F-16 is not really good at gliding, although it looks real sleek. It's not really good at gliding. Seven miles horizontal for every 5,000 feet altitude. And I did the numbers. I go, "Ah, I might be able to get to 160 from here before I had to jump out. And so I said, okay, that's not too bad. And I go through all these machinations and I go, okay, I got to get prepped. And I had all this classified material that we had taken with us for targets, you know, that kind of stuff and all the code, and I go, shoot, nobody told me what to do with that in case this happens. So I decided I was gonna lay it out on the console, the F-16, and, and if you're familiar, the console is right at your elbow level. So I just laid all that stuff out on the console. i figure when the rocket motor fired, it would torch that stuff off, it'd be all right. So I'm okay, I zeroed out all that stuff, you know. Then I keyed the microphone and I go, hey, how far to the border now? Long pause, 205. Okay, from 206 to 205, I did all that stuff, and you're doing three. you know, so. Again, the temporal distortion has really gotten there at that point. So I'm a glider and I made the decision that in my glide, if I get to the top of the clouds and I knew the cloud tops were somewhere between twelve and 14,000, I said, if I get to the top of the clouds, I'm going to bail there because I want to be able to see exiting the airplane. I don't want to be in the middle of a cloud. I don't want to know three feet above the ground I'm jumping out and I don't know where the ground is. So I had that decision process and, I, and, and I'm in the descent, in the glide now. And then the airplane decides, that's all I got. The F-16 has the last bit of hydraulic fluid will give you an upward vector. And that's what it does. It says, I'm going to give you everything I can up. I know where up is. And so the stab digs in and the airplane pitches up and I can't stop it. And I pushed forward on the stick once, it kept going. Pushed forward on the stick second time, it kept going. The third time, I, to this day, I swear I broke the stick off and then I grabbed the ejection handle, and the cable's only six, eight inches long. I grabbed the cable, and I had that thing up against my chin, and I pulled it all the way to here, and absolutely nothing happens. Nothing happens. I'm like, oh, this day is just going crazy, and I'm just about ready to pitch up into the, close to the vertical, and I'm thinking, oh man, nobody's ever had to do the canopy jettison, you know, all that stuff, because the seat, and I kept remembering that there was a fire right behind where my seat is. I thought, okay, maybe it burned through. I got a shrapnel. Something burned through something and it's not working. But you're not going through the canopy because it's this thick. If the canopy doesn't go, you're not going. Well, the emergency jettison T-handle is down here by your left hip bone. Well, if you reach down and go like this and pull that thing, your arm goes with the canopy on your way out. So you can't do that. You got to reach across. You got to hold the handle all the way up. You got to reach across over here and grab it like that. You know, hey, So I look down, I see where it is. I go, okay, I reach across, I get my hand on it, just ready to push the the button and pull. And I put my head back again. I look one more time and I'm getting ready to squeeze the trigger. And all of a sudden I see a little gap growing on the canopy rail. And I like, okay, canopy's just not happening. Things aren't happening. I'm pitching up into the vertical. The canopy goes, I start to go out of the airplane, but it wasn't that wonderful Zoom! I'm gone. It was just the slow, and I thought, "Oh shit! I got a cold shot." Oh, this day is just getting really good. And then, as I start sliding—literally, I'm sliding out of the airplane—I thought to myself, "Crap! I'm going to slide down the spine of the airplane and fall into the vertical stabilizer on in the seat because that's just the way it felt. Like I was just going to slide out and fall down. Well, about that time, I felt a little wiggle, and all of a sudden, the seat repositions. And now I'm face down. So I'm clear of the airplane. The drogue chute has come out, stabilized the seat. And what's not in the dash one, which is your natops, is that the seat is going to reposition and you're going to be face down. Seat repositions. I'm face down and I am looking at the pedo tube of my airplane from me to, you know, it was like eight feet away from me. And I am falling onto the pedo tube of my airplane. That is the visual I see. And I'm going... You got to be kidding me. This is just, you know, all of this is because your brain is functioning at a higher level. The airplane is falling way faster than I'm going to. So it disappears out of the way. And then I see the canopy is tumbling off to my left. And you remember all those classified documents? They're flying everywhere. They didn't burn. <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff, you know, it probably <laughs> melted on the way down. It was a
0: good try. Yeah.
1: That's the best thing I could think of at the time. So you know now i'm outside the airplane oh by the way you know this i'm in the mid-20s when this happens low to mid-20s yeah it's cold up there yeah and it's really cold and this is january above baghdad you think oh it's hot no 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 it's minus whatever and it's cold i'm just in a flight suit and nothing else so i'm freezing my ass off on the way i remember it being really cold on the way down parachute's not going to open until about fourteen thousand on the green bottle thinking through all this, my brain is still focused on the fact that stuff has not worked right. So I was convinced that the seat wasn't going to function if I didn't help it. Again, I knew the top of the clouds were about 14. I said, if I hit the clouds, I'm going to have to do a manual seat separation. Nobody's ever had to do that in the ACES two seat. So I'm like, oh crap. And I don't know if you remember, you got to grab a hold of this handle and shove the parachute out because it's in your headrest. You know, there's two little pedo tubes and
0: no, I did fly. Uh, I, I have 170 hours in A's and B's, um, but I don't remember that ever coming up, but maybe I've just forgotten it.
1: Yeah, that's all right. So I thought, OK, if I get down there, I'm going to go out to do the manual seat separation. Get me out of the seat, get a parachute, and get rid of this stuff that's not working. I was convinced it just wasn't working. Well, yeah. I start falling, falling and falling. And sure enough, I get to the wispy the clouds. And oh, by the way, clouds are made out of water. When you're falling through, you get wet. So now I'm cold and wet and i go okay that's it i can't wait anymore i'm going to manual separate i reach down grab that handle i got my hand reaching up to put the pedo tube in there and just shove it and i get to that point and all of a sudden i get slammed out of the seat bam i get slammed out of the seat i got a parachute just about that fast and i'm like oh i guess maybe this stuff is working you know i mean i was convinced so now i'm following through the clouds Again, a couple of things that aren't in the dash one or the natops is that you don't fall real fast. It's about one minute per thousand. So I got 14 minutes, 15 minutes of hanging in the straps in the clouds. I didn't know where the bases were because I wasn't sure where I was. Turns out I was somewhere between 160, 170 miles north of Kuwaiti border. So about 30 or 40 miles from where I got hit. So pretty good far south, I thought. I was pretty happy mm-hmm. about that. And I go, there's nothing there. I mean, we're out in the desert now. Sun's going down. I'm pretty happy about this. I go, well, shoot. People know where I'm at. I'm not hurt. The sun's going down. I'm in the middle of nowhere. This is going to be a good spot. So grab the radio, said the magic words, and didn't hear anything. Well, you know, you got a Korean-era POS here for your radio. And... <laughs> And, you know, I'm wearing a helmet and trying to jam that thing up in there. You can't hear stuff. You know, you go, OK. Well, evidently, they did hear me. And, you know, the rules were, if we didn't hear from you, we're not coming for you. And they weren't coming for me anyway, too far north. That's way I thought. So I thought, well, I'm about 160, 170 miles. I said, when I hit the ground, I got enough adrenaline. I can probably do a, a marathon in, in a couple hours. And I'll be standing there at 129 miles waiting for those guys. You know, that was my feeling at that time. Then I go, holy cow, I don't know where the bottom of the clouds are. I got to get my shit together. So put everything away, got prepared for a parachute landing. And I start coming out of the bottom of the clouds. And I recognize that there's some smoke and big rectangular black objects not too far away from me. I'm going to say five or six kilometers away off to my left. And the wind is blowing me that way. So I don't want to go there. So I turn the parachute into the wind. I try to stop my forward progress headed towards them. And then I realized that the smoke, initially, I thought, oh, maybe it's just, you know, they're cooking fires or something. And it turns out, no, it was, it was gunfire. They were shooting at me. So a couple of bullets go and by. And once that happens, like, okay, all bets are off now. I'm, I'm going to have to do something different. So I start collapsing the parachute. So I, you know, I'm like the uh, bobbing dogs in the, in the carnival games. You know, I'm trying to make myself a really difficult target. And so I, I do that. And I hit the ground in a perfect PLF, toes, knees, nose, you know, got everything off, made one last radio call and grabbed the hit and run kit. And I took off and I got about four Jesse Owens size strides out of the way before they shot up the ground around me and I'm standing there like this. (laughs) And I thought it was the second echelon of the Republican guards because that's kind of where they were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Turns out it was a group of Bedouin tribes that and of course they don't have a country they had no teeth and no shoes but brand new ak 47 so i kind of figured they weren't on our side made a big circle around me and they're shooting in the air like everybody likes to do in that part of the world when they are celebrating and their uh leader of that little group was probably 10 guys the leader of that little group gives his weapon to the guy next to him and he walks up to me and he's yelling and screaming And i'm just standing there i'm not doing anything and uh he's yelling and screaming and he hauls off and Kicks me in the groin. Remember, he's got no shoes on. I still had my parachute harness on, all those buckles and everything. I didn't feel it. I had so much adrenaline in my system, didn't even hurt. I think I put a gash across the top of his foot, and you know he was not happy. Uh, and he he doesn't want to walk back limping, you know. So he's trying to be a real big guy after after I you know his foot got smacked on the buckles, and then he goes back, grabs his AK, and then runs up and literally jams it up my nose. And I got the idea that you know he wasn't happy about that. Then he sees that I still have my sidearm and now he really gets excited. He steps back and, and Jack's went in the chamber and uh, I go, oh, okay, okay. And I did the left hand grab and toss. And I broke the discus record for that. You know, when I tossed that weapon and now he gets real excited and, and I realize he wants me to go down on one knee, the guy behind me, butt strokes me, boom. And I am watching Tweety birds and stars and they dogpile on me, tie me up and start dragging me through the desert sun is now essentially down and <laughs> they had a pretty good sized nose so I'm plowing a big old groove through the sand as they're pulling me along you know and um I-, I was really impressed these guys knew every sand dune. I mean they knew precisely where they were going it's now dark can't see squat we go around over, over. they got tired after about a kilometer then they untied my legs and then they were you know duck walking me but at least I was walking and not being drugged through the sand and we come around this one sand dune and there's a little shack I mean it's the size of a closet but there's a you know it's made out of tin and they all pile in there with me and now they're going through all of you know all my stuff and they decide there's nothing there and they're yelling stuff that I don't understand and uh they get rid of all my gear except for my g-suit because they couldn't figure out how to unzip that and untie it up I'm not going to help them so then they, we leave there and we end up walking to their camp, which was those big black tents I saw earlier in the, in the day when I hit the ground. And they take me into their, the nomadic camp that they had there and they put me in the tent with the chief. And the chief is sitting there on a threadbare rug, just like Lawrence of Arabia, leaning back over on a pillow, you know, looking like he's somebody. And I spent the night playing games with those guys until the next morning. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, after we had played games for a while, I heard the unmistakable sound of a C-130 going by and he wasn't too far from me. So somebody was out looking for me and, you know, your mind starts racing in these scenarios. And I thought, okay, they know where I'm, they know I'm here. They know where I am. And in about five to 10 minutes, a couple of Delta operators are to come through that tent door and I'm going home. And these guys, you know, it'll be all over. And that didn't happen. (laughs) So, was a nice thought, but it didn't work out like that. And the next thing I know, we're uh, we're piling into a truck the next morning and head off to Baghdad. Six more weeks, <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is a whole separate happy hour discussion. All right, so you make it out, uh, Mr. You said he got shot down, but you didn't know. But he did. He <clears throat> makes it out as well. He
1: does. I didn't know. You know, I thought he was dead for about ten days, and then we we were being moved around quite a bit. I was in five different prisons in and around Baghdad. The second one we were in was like a stock, military stockade. And the guards would come by and check, you know, they would ask you your name. And we took to shouting out our names. And then after about 10 days, I heard MR's voice and I heard his name. So I knew he was alive. And we both got released approximately the same time.
0: <laughs> was there someone else in your four ship? Because I think when I listen to the video, I think I hear like stroke fours hit or something like that. Is, so who, who else in your group?
1: No, nobody else in my group got hit. That was CREDFOR okay. that you hear CREDFOR got hit.
0: Oh, okay. And then yeah. it was uh, ET's, uh, I think it says in that article, his expendables weren't coming out and yet proved the adage that maneuvering is more important than
1: expendables. Yep. They claim that he came back with uh, chaff and everything stuck in the airplane, but it was pretty common that the chaff bundles in the F-16, they would jam. I would say 30% of the time, you'd think you were expending, but they weren't going out. And when we didn't have that many to begin with, not a lot of room back there. So if you think about it, I'm going to pick a number. I don't even remember now. You got 40 chaff bundles. Every time you smack the button, two come out, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it didn't take
1: long to empty those out. In a two-minute avoidance scenario, you're busy.
0: The F-18 had one 30-round bucket in each intake, under the intake. So we yeah. had 60 on the early jets, and then they doubled that on later jets and on the Super Hornet. And then they came out with the BOL or whatever. I don't know if you guys ever had that, like it was in the launchers. but
1: Way different. <laughs> yeah, 30, yeah, for 30 sure. years ago, things were different.
0: We'll have to do another one of these to talk about your captivity. Because when I was a young pilot, so when all this happened, by the way, I was in college. But when I was accepted into flight school and started through flight school, I used to read as much as I could get my hands on as far as, POW book scale because not to say I was afraid of it, but I just thought, gosh, that sounds awful. Number one, but number two, I want to know what other people went through. So if those emotions happened to me, if it never happened, that I would be uh, hopefully at least armed with, yeah, that's pretty normal. Uh, but then, you know, just to be encouraged by the people who did. But yeah, you guys, uh, from some other stuff I've read, including the tornado book by John Nickel, I'm pointing at it as if you can see it over there on my bookshelf. He, he spent some time as a guest as well. And it sounds like It wasn't particularly pleasant, I guess, to to understate
1: it. You know, people go, well, how was it? I go, well, you know, I lost 45 pounds in 46 days. That'll give you an idea, okay? The treatment was certainly not (laughs) within the Geneva Convention rules, whatever you want to call that. It was uncomfortable at times. There's no doubt about it. But as I tell people, six weeks does not compare to six years. No. A very good friend of mine who has become a very good friend of mine lives about two miles from me. He spent five and a half years in Hanoi Hilton. We were chatting at some reunion of some kind. I can't recall where it was. And I said to him, yeah, six weeks doesn't compare to six years. And he looked at me, he looked at me straight in the eye and he goes, you missed the boring part. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go with that.
0: <laughs> which which can be awful in its own way. So um, there's so many things I want to ask you about that. But again, let's let's save it for another time. But I do want to ask you about your first flight back. So you get repatriated. In, I think, what, March, mid-March of uh, 91? Yeah, March, huh? March 6, yeah. How long does it take you to fly again, and what was that first flight back like?
1: After uh, we were repatriated, it uh, took three or four days to get stabilized on the hospital ship. Then we all went back to the States. Another week in the hospital, and then the Air Force mandated that I have 30 days of convalescent leave in the United States. Oh. And I wanted to get back and fly an airplane back, you know, from Qutara, they wouldn't let me go. So I don't get back to um, Spain. My squadron had finally redeployed back to Torjón. I don't get back to Spain until roundabout tax day. So it would have been April 18th or something like that. I got cleared back on flying status within another two weeks. So my first flight was probably May of 91-ish, you know, That was one of the beauties of my scenario is while I was diagnosed with a mild to moderate case of PTSD, getting back doing what I used to do and being able to do it, the PTSD gets diminished because you're focused on something else and you're focused on doing your job. So I credit the fact that I was physically able to get back and do what I was doing before. Now, the first time a false alarm came up on the RWR, I almost swallowed the seat cushion. Other than that, you know, it was okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. How about now, 30 years later? Has it been, Yeah. are there still rough nights? Uh, I'm sorry to even ask, but... No, no,
1: I, I don't have a problem talking about it. I can't tell you that I don't have issues, but nothing that wakes me up in the middle of the night of, you know, a sweat or constantly worried about something. No, I, I don't have any of that. My life does not suck. You know, this is this is way good. You know, life is way good.
0: Double retirement. You're still married and, uh, and, and hopefully yep. having some fun on the side. I appreciate your time today. And we're going to stop in a second. We'll do a quick debrief and wrap up. But boy, you're an American hero. I, I presume you get a lot of requests to go visit the academy and other places to tell your story.
1: I have not had anything for quite some time, and usually it occurs on the anniversary stuff, you know, the 25th yeah. to 30th. So the 35's is coming up. I expect that to happen. I am, and I, I say this to just about everyone who asks these questions, and I go, I'm not a professional POW. That's six weeks out of a rather long life. Uh, it was a speed bump. Uh, I'll be happy to tell you things that you don't really want to hear. It's not the topic of dinner conversation but if you want me to tell the story i'll tell you a story i don't mind doing that to uh, organizations that are related to the military i mm-hmm. gave up many years ago doing the civilian thing because it becomes becomes a burden because they have no concept you know the h word is not something that's bantered around you know and uh, so we we don't even worry about that <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, you're here to meet Tico. I want to thank you again for that. Wow. That's amazing. And uh, let's keep in touch.
1: You've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show and a shop page featuring unique military aviation themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks to our title sponsor, National University.